Chapter Twenty of Erewhon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hannah Dowell. Erewhon by Samuel Butler. Chapter Twenty. What they mean by it. I have given the above mythology at some length, but it is only a small part of what they have upon the subject. My first feeling on reading it was that any amount of folly on the part of the unborn in coming here was justified by a desire to escape from such intolerable prosing. The mythology is obviously an unfair and exaggerated representation of life and things, and had its authors been so minded, they could have easily drawn a picture which would err as much on the bright side as this does on the dark. No Erewhonian believes that the world is as black as it has here been painted. But it is one of their peculiarities that they very often do not believe or mean things which they profess to regard as indisputable. In the present instance, their professed views concerning the unborn have arisen from their desire to prove that people have been presented with the gloomiest possible picture of their own prospects before they came here. Otherwise, they could hardly say to one whom they are going to punish for an affection of the heart or brain that it is all his own doing. In practice, they modify their theory to a considerable extent, and seldom refer to the birth formula except in extreme cases, for the force of habit or what not gives many of them a kindly interest even in creatures who have so much wrong to them as the unborn have done. And though a man generally hates the unwelcome little stranger of the first twelve months, he is apt to mollify, according to his lights, as time goes on, and sometimes he will become inordinately attached to the beings whom he is pleased to call his children. Of course, according to Erewhonian premises, it would serve people right to be punished and scouted for moral and intellectual diseases as much as for physical and I cannot this day understand why they should have stopped short half-way. Neither again can I understand why their having done so should have been, as it certainly was, a matter of so much concern to myself. What could it matter to me how many absurdities the Erebonians might adopt? Nevertheless, I longed to make them think as I did, for the wish to spread these opinions that we hold conducive to our own welfare is so deeply rooted in the English character that few of us can escape its influence. But let this pass. In spite of not a few modifications in practice of a theory, which is itself revolting, the relations between children and parents in that country are less happy than in Europe. It was rarely that I saw cases of real hearty and intense affection between old people and the young ones. Here and there I did so, and was quite sure about the children, even at the age of twenty, were fonder of their parents than they were of any one else, and that of their own inclination, being free to choose what company they would, would often choose that of their father and mother. The straightener's carriage was rarely seen at the door of those houses. I saw two or three such cases during the time that I remained in the country, and could not express the pleasure which I derived from a sight suggestive of so much goodness and wisdom and forbearance so richly rewarded. Yet 
I firmly believe that the same thing would happen in nine families out of ten if the parents were merely to remember how they felt when they were young, and actually behaved towards their children as they would have had their own parents behave towards them. But this, which would appear to be so simple and obvious, seems also to be a thing which not one in a hundred thousand is able to put in practice. It is only the very great and good who have made any living faith in the simplest axioms, and there are few who are so holy as to feel that nineteen and thirteen make thirty-two, as certainly as two and two make four. I am quite sure that if this narrative should ever fall into Erewhonian hands, it will be said that what I have written about the relations between parents and children being seldom satisfactory is an infamous perversion of facts, and that, in truth, there are few young people who do not feel happier in the society of their nearest relations than in any other. Mr. Nozibor would be sure to say this, yet I cannot refrain from expressing an opinion that he would be a good deal embarrassed if his deceased parents were to appear and propose to pay him a six-month's visit. I doubt whether there are many things which he would regard as greater infliction. They had died at a ripe old age some twenty years before I came to know him, so the case is an extreme one. But surely, if they had treated him with what, in his youth, he had felt to be true unselfishness, his face would brighten when he thought of them to the end of his life. In the one or two cases of true family affection which I met with, I am sure that the young people, who were so genuinely fond of their fathers and mothers at eighteen, would at sixty be perfectly delighted were they to get the chance of welcoming them as their guests. There is nothing which could please them better, except, perhaps, to watch the happiness of their own children and grandchildren. This is how things should be. It is not an impossible ideal. It is one which actually does exist in some few cases, and might exist in almost all, with a little more patience and forbearance upon the parents' part. But it is rare at present, so rare that they have a proverb which I can only translate in a very roundabout way, but which says that the great happiness of some people in the future state will consist in watching the distress of their parents on returning to eternal companionship with their grandfathers and grandmothers, whilst compulsory affection is the idea which lies at the root of their word of the deepest anguish. There is no talisman in the word parent, which can generate miracles of affection, and I could well believe that my own child might find it less of a calamity to lose both Arowena and myself when he is six years old, than to find us again when he is sixty. A sentence which I would not pen did I not feel that by doing so I was giving him something like a hostage, or at any rate putting a weapon into his hands against me, should my selfishness exceed reasonable limits. Money is at the bottom of all of this to a great extent. If the parents would put their children in the way of earning a competence earlier than they do, the children would soon become self-supporting and independent. 
As it is, under the present system, the young ones get old enough to have all manner of legitimate wants, that is, if they have any go about them, before they have learnt the means of earning money to pay for them. Hence, they must either do without them, or take more money than the parents can be expected to spare. This is due chiefly to the schools of unreason, where a boy is taught upon hypothetical principles, as I will explain hereafter, spending years in being incapacitated for doing this, that, or the other, he hardly knows what, during all which time he ought to have been actually doing the thing itself, beginning at the lowest grades, picking it up through actual practice, and rising according to the energy which is in him. These schools of unreason surprised me much. It would be easy to fall into pseudo-utilitarianism, and I would fain believe that the system may be good for the children of very rich parents, or for those who show a natural instinct to acquire hypothetical law. But the misery was their youngdren workship required all people to, with any pretense to respectability to send the children to some one or other of these schools, mulcting them of years of money. It astonished me to see what sacrifices the parents would make in order to render their children as nearly useless as possible, and it was hard to say whether the old suffered most from the expense with which they were thus put to, or the young from being deliberately swindled in some of the most important branches of human inquiry, and directed into false channels, or left to drift in the great majority of cases. I cannot think that I am mistaken in believing that the growing tendency to limit families by infanticide, an evil which was causing general alarm throughout the country, was almost entirely due to the way in which education had become a fetish from one end of Erewhon to the other. Granted that provision should be made whereby every child should be taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, but here compulsory state-aided education should end, and the child should begin, with all due precautions to ensure that he is not overworked, to acquire the rudiments of that art whereby he is to earn his living. He cannot acquire these in what we in England call schools of technical education. Such schools are cloister life, as against the rough and tumble of the world. They unfit rather than fit for work in the open. An art can only be learned in the workshop of those who are winning their bread by it. Boys, as a rule, hate the artificial and delight in the actual. Give them the chance of earning, and they will soon earn. When parents find that their children, instead of being made artificially burdensome, will early begin to contribute to the well-being of the family, they will soon leave off killing them and will seek to have that plentitude of offspring which they now avoid. As things are, the state lays greater burdens on parents than flesh and blood can bear, and then wrings its hands over an evil for which it is itself mainly responsible. With the less well-dressed classes the harm was not so great. 
For among these, at about ten years old, the child has to begin doing something. If he is capable, he makes his way up. If he is not, he is, at any rate, not made more incapable by what his friends are pleased to recall his education. People find their level as a rule, and though they are unfortunate, they sometimes miss it, it is in the main true that those who have valuable qualities are perceived to have them and can sell them. I think that the Erewhonians are beginning to become aware of these things, for there was much talk about putting tax upon all parents whose children were not earning a competence according to their degrees by the time they were twenty years old. I am sure that if they will have the courage to carry it through, they will never regret it, for the parents will take care that the children shall begin earning money, which means doing good to society, at an early age. Then the children will be independent early, and they will not press on the parents, nor the parents on them, and they will like each other better than they do now. This is the true philanthropy. He, who makes a colossal fortune in the hosiery trade, and by his energy succeeded in reducing the price of woollen goods by the thousandth part of a penny in the pound, this man is worth ten professional philanthropists. So strongly are the Aronians impressed with this, that if a man has made a fortune of over twenty thousand a year, they exempt him from all taxation, considering him as a work of art, and too precious to be meddled with. They say, how very much he must have done for society before society could have been prevailed upon to give him so much money. So magnificent an organisation overawes them. They regard it as a thing dropped from heaven. Money, they say, is the symbol of duty. It is the sacrament of having done for mankind that which mankind wanted. Mankind might not be a very good judge, but there is no better. This used to shock me at first, when I remembered that it had been said on high authority that they who have riches shall enter hardly into the kingdom of heaven. But the influence of Erewhon had made me begin to see things in a new light, and I could not help thinking that they who have not riches shall enter more hardy still. People oppose money to culture, and imply that if a man has spent his time in making money, he will not be cultivated. Fallacy of fallacies! As though there could be a greater aid to culture than the having earned an honourable independence, and as though any amount of culture will do match the man who is penniless, except make him feel his position more deeply. The young man, who was told to sell all his goods and give to the poor, must have been an entirely exceptional person if the advice was given wisely, either for him or for the poor. How much more often does it happen that we perceive a man to have all sorts of good qualities except money, and feel that his real duty lies in getting every half-penny that he can persuade others to pay him for his services, and becoming rich? It has been said that the love of money is the root of all evil. The want of money is so quite as truly. The above may sound irreverent, but it is conceived in a spirit of the most utter reverence for those things which do alone deserve it, that is, for the things which are, which 
mould us and fashion us, be they what they may, for the things that have the power to punish us, and which will punish us if we do not heed them, for our masters, therefore. But I am drifting away from my story. They have another plan, about which they are making a great noise and fuss, much as some are doing with women's rights in England. A party of extreme radicals have professed themselves unable to decide upon the superiority of age or youth. At present, all goes on the supposition that it is desirable to make the young old as soon as possible. Some would have it that this is wrong, and that the object of education should be to keep the old young as long as possible. They say that each age should take it turn in turn about week by week, one week to the old to be topsoyers and the other the young, drawing the line at thirty-five years of age, but they insist that the young should be allowed to inflict corporal chastisement on the old, without which the old would be quite incorrigible. In any European country this would be out of the question, but it is not so here, for the straighteners are constantly ordering people to be flogged, so that they are familiar with the notion. I do not suppose that the idea will ever be acted upon, but its having been even mooted is enough to show the utter perversion of the Aronian mind. End of chapter 20 Recording by Hannah Dowell